Welcome everybody to the February 23rd edition of Cascadian Views. We got a light crew today, just me and Dan. How are you doing? Hey, I'm doing okay. How are you doing, Brock? I am. I'm doing all right. Hunkering down. We're supposed to have a bit of a snowstorm tonight, um, but it's it's been kind of a slow week, so I, I figured it'd be good to chat. Um, the only real, I, I guess, national story we've got in here that is a continuing coverage is the the Manafort sentencing memo and I guess some follow-on stuff with Neelan about whether or not his uh, report is wrapping up or something like that. Uh, have you had a chance to read any of the, the sentencing memo? Not yet. No, I mean, that just was today. So yeah. I haven't really had a chance to really get through it. 800 pages and it dropped like four hours ago. <laughs> so I don't think anybody's read the whole thing, although it might be possible. Substantial amounts of it are redacted. Um, but this is the first time that a number of people who I believe are experienced with the, the federal courts and whatnot have uh, said that the government found no mitigating circumstances whatsoever. Um, I, I guess, and you may know more about this than, than I do, but government policies to detail all the uh, mitigating circumstances and uh, aggravating circumstances. And this is, man, they just, they literally say at one point that in, in no record in the government's files can it you know, report anything quite like what Manafort has done. His crimes continued during the campaign, during the transition, during the presidential administration of Trump, and even after entering into the plea deal, he continued uh, this action. A lot of it revolves around uh, the foreign agent stuff, um, simply work he did in Ukraine. Uh, for the first time, it's alleged that he kind of helped lay the groundwork for the uh, the annexation of Crimea, working with Putin to spread that sort of propaganda uh, garden that they planted before taking it. Yeah, well, I mean, the whole point of entering into a plea agreement is to get at least some mitigation of what he's done. I mean, the man is, he's going away forever. I mean, uh, that just seems pretty clear based on this today. Well, it's been in the cards for a while, for some time. Yeah, well, I mean, going away pending a pardon. Right. Assumption there. Well, like some other people, Manafort did lie to protect the president. Yeah, well, even then though, I mean, what the Attorney General's office in New York was also preparing charges against him, I believe. So I think they're preparing for that eventuality. Um, and then that brings us to kind of some larger discussion about Mueller. The talk about him wrapping up has really intensified lately. Mm -hmm. um, CNN reported that the, uh, the final report is expected to be delivered to the Attorney General as early as earlier this week. Obviously, they come to fruition. Uh, DOJ itself is starting to try and, and pour a little bit of cold water on that. They've confirmed that it won't be here uh, least by so right but it does sound like it's it's coming to a head of course we've heard that many 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 times before over the last you know two years at this point yeah i mean what at least i've been reading in the last few days is a lot of you know people trying to explain why it might not be so bad if Mueller wraps up you know this week i mean we're trying to go over what his role in the whole investigation is supposed to be. But there's very little that we actually know. And I think that's important to keep coming back to, that 
it is it could be a complete surprise as to what's actually happening. There's been very little leaking out of this investigation at all. So all of us here in uh, kind of pundit land and uh, amateur pundit land, we don't really know what's going to be happening. One thing that strikes me as weird is that there are several people who are big players in this that special counsel has not interviewed yet. Uh, mm -hmm. Jared Kushner, Ivanka Trump, uh, Don Jr. may be involved in there, although he might be stupid to actually be allowed in the parts. Uh, but that, that seems to me like something we're going to have to see before it all wraps up, unless I'm well, and that was what one of the uh, theories that I was reading kind of got into a little bit, is that where Mueller has been putting a lot of his focus is on people who could conceivably, or at least in terms of trying to secure indictments, he's been working on people who could conceivably actually testify and provide additional information of someone at the next step up. I don't think anyone is expecting that Don Jr. is going to, you know, actually flip on a higher value target. So, I mean, the one theory as to why Mueller might conclude before uh, going ahead and uh, bringing the indictment against this per against, uh, you know, Don Jr., Kushner, or anybody else, is that maybe he's leaving that to DOJ. He's not seeing that as really part of his mandate. And Make of that what you will. It's also based on the assumption that, you know, the investigation is indeed about to end. But it may be one way to interpret what he's doing or what his role is supposed to be. You know, the man himself doesn't speak. He doesn't tell us what he's doing. <laughs> no, not at all. Um, it, it's been a completely tight ship over there, which has to annoy the shit out of Trump, I have to imagine. Yeah, you know, just adds to the panic. Yeah. Um the the other one uh, kind of national story I wanted to bring up was, uh, did you notice we have a new UN ambassador replacing Nikki Haley? Well, I think she's been nominated. Uh, UN ambassador still has to be confirmed by the Senate, right? Or was that already, did yeah. I already get through? It, it does have to be confirmed by the Senate. Yeah. But I don't think stopping. Yeah. Well, it's the second person that Trump's tried to appoint to this following Haley's resignation. And yeah, you were mentioning that it's, you know, kind of dubious qualifications for the role. And... Well, so kind of. I'm actually of two minds of this. Uh, ambassadorships are largely a political patronage post. Uh, they're, yeah. They're given off to donors, although usually you do that in countries you don't care. The ambassador to Liechtenstein. No, the ambassador to the Bahamas. Something you get by giving a lot of money to the president. You're yeah. ambassador to like Russia or China or the UK or Germany, you're likely a little bit more of a serious person, either a, a career politician or a career one of those kinds of schools. Um, this is the first time that the UN ambassador uh, will be a political donor. Uh, her name is Kelly Knight Kraft, no relation to Robert Kraft, mm -hmm. also in the news this week. Oh my God. Yeah, yeah. Uh, she is currently the ambassador to Canada. Like I said, usually one of those cushy posts. Canada is not a problem. Um, she's now being bumped up to the UN. I, Trump doesn't really care about the UN. He really doesn't. This is really just putting the ambassadorship uh, down at the level that considers it. 
and it's not anything out of the ordinary for non-important ambassadors to propose. I think it's sad and depressing that we don't value the UN to the, the point that we don't put an actual diplomat. But uh, I, I, to me, it feels like he's just being. Yeah. Well, you hit the nail on the head. I mean, that's exactly it. This is not a position or a priority or anything that he really cares about in any way, shape, or form. I mean, this was his second attempt to fill the position following Haley. His first one was a former Fox News host who, I guess, had been working as a uh, State Department spokesperson. Oh, yeah, so, an hour. Exactly. So he's not really concerned at all about qualifications. I mean, for that matter, Nikki Haley wasn't particularly qualified for the job either. She'd been a, you know, the governor of uh, South Carolina, which you know has at least some responsibility. But what that has to do with foreign policy or what kind of knowledge that comes with? I mean, there's really nothing. So I mean, it, it was all about, in that case, I would say taking a potentially critical voice within the Republican Party out of play. And yeah, that's really all he's done with uh, the United Nations. Speaking he doesn't of care. Potentially critical voices. Remember, Nikki Haley was one of the uh, potential authors of that infamous anonymous op-ed that everybody forgot about. Like exactly. Published. Yeah. Uh, I really think at some point in like ten years, we're going to learn her. Going to be fantastic. <laughs> um, yeah. No. This is probably a good point to sit down and maybe uh, talk about the state of the democratic field because we've had a bunch of changes. And I know we're really blowing through this topic list, so we should burn a bunch of time here. Mm -hmm. But uh, we had a new entrance of an old face. Uh, Bernie Sanders has announced his campaign. Uh, raised like $4 million in his first 24 hours, something like that, $6 million. $6 million. yeah. He really, yeah, pulled port on the gas. Yeah, um, it's uh, a notable entrance, although he is not at the head of the polls. He does have a very passionate court base, and the, the field remains fractured. He could very well kind of scoop all this up. Uh, at that point, really, Kamala Harris taking California roadblock on it. Um, but do you, how do we feel this shaking, uh, shaking down when you look at Well, I think it changes the tone pretty dramatically. I think there was at least a fair amount of hope that we wouldn't do a lot of rehashing of 2016 and a lot of the old boundaries and battle lines from the last primary election would not repeat themselves. I mean, compared to certain contests like 2008, yeah, 2016 was something that could be worked through, but it was also pretty painful. And I think as close as the election was, it's hard to not say that there was at least some connection between how divisive the very end of that primary was and the fact that Trump was able to squeak out an electoral college win. So if you didn't want to repeat all of that that went down, I think the whole possibility of avoiding that has just gone completely out the window when one of the key players is back in the race with, frankly, and I, I'm i trying to follow the thumper rule with Bernie, really, I, I don't want to spend a lot of time dumping on him, but 
he's bringing in a lot of the same extremely divisive people who were a big problem for him in 2016 as well. He's made Nina Turner his campaign co-chair. He's still apparently got Jeff Weaver in his orbit. It's, for those of us who are hoping for something better, it's not an encouraging sign. It, it should be noted, uh, there's an interesting dynamic here in that I think his fan base might be more rabid than they were before. Hmm. Um, I don't know if you noticed today, but he, he put out a very... I, it, it's, it's a good tweet. Mm -hmm. he, he points out that the people of Venezuela... In fact, I'll read it word for word. The people of Venezuela are enduring a serious humanitarian crisis. The Maduro government must put the needs of its people first, allow humanitarian aid into the country, and refrain from violence. Yeah. Pretty pretty simple tweet, right? I, I think and I'd like, agree with it. I mean, that's yeah. the right thing to say. <laughs> uh, oh, my God. He is being blasted by his fan base for this. Yeah. Uh, yeah I mean, it's... It's nearly ratioed. It's got roughly the same number of comments as liked. Uh, it's become kind of a giant story. It was the headline at, I think, The Hill earlier, um, how badly it's taken off. Um, hmm. it, it's They're just excoriating him uh, for supporting, you know, U.S.-led regime change. Yeah. I don't know if I... you've seen the horrible, like, uh, footage from the, the border down there today. Uh, not from today, but it's just they been an ongoing nightmare. They, oh, they, really? They set them on fire, blew them up. Uh, two, two protesters are dead. Um, and then there's another absolutely horrifying video of some soldiers defecting from uh, from Venezuela to Colombia, and they're just plowing through crowds of people in, in their, their jeeps or whatever to get across wow. the border on the other side. It's uh, yeah, I mean, it's, well, it's just uh, such a terrible scenario anyway. Uh, at least in regards to Bernie, I think some of that could be a function of the fact that, you know, his base, his base of support is a little bit smaller than it was in 2016. So the ones that are likely to still be on might be a little bit more of the hardcore, a little bit more of the, you know, I, I'm trying to find a non- pejorative way of describing it, but just a more edgy kind of approach to politics and approach to ideology and everything else. So I think it could certainly be a function of that. Yeah. The, um, the, the move kind of puts into stark, stark contrast how much money is out there. Mm -hmm. We talked about this a bit in the group, but I... One of the things that I think we're going to have to reckon with, there's enough money out there. I'm even talking about small jobs, not necessarily Harvard money, but that people can stay in essentially forever. Yeah. Um, there is an increasing likelihood, I think, the more people we have and the more people raising billions of dollars, that we may end up seeing a broker convention cycle, something mm -hmm. that we have not seen in a very long time. Yeah, well, absolutely. And I mean, Bernie's not one of my main worries as far as that's concerned, because he was always going to be able to raise a lot of money. But even some of the more marginal candidates, I mean, if, you know, say Julian Castro can still keep raising money after, say, losing in Texas, 
you know, which seems entirely possible. There's kind of a fundraising base for everybody. Uh, in 2018, I mean, we saw how much funding was generated, some of it by, you know, anger, opposition to Trump. But I think people are going to be very passionate about the candidates they get behind. And so they're going to keep giving. Heck, I've got a recurring donation set up to Gillibrand right now, and she's polling at 1% pretty much anywhere. You know, I think there's going to be a lot of people like that who, you know, pick their favorites and they'll be able to stick with them. And as long as there's that, you know, source of funding, then yeah, you could still see a half dozen candidates or more still in the race after Super Tuesday. I hope not, because yeah, like you described, it's going to end up in a brokered convention and so chaos. The least democratic option possible. Oh yeah, yeah. This is, you know, then they get there, and the first ballot goes by, and then they're completely free to go for whoever they want. You know, you know that's and nobody's going to be satisfied with that. I mean, can you? I mean, I'm trying to picture a scenario, but you know, imagine that you know, say. I don't know, Bernie and Kamala and Biden all show up with, you know, 20, 25 percent of the delegates each and the other 25 are among the field and the convention has to pick one of those, any of them. It'll be, man, there's no way that you can unite from that and get make a viable opposition to an incumbent president under those circumstances, especially if, you know, Republicans manage to hold together any kind of unity at all. The, uh, the thing that might be a nightmare looking forward, uh, the debates for the primary, uh, 538, I don't know if you read it, but they had a great piece, uh, kind of breaking down the rules for the debates and going to be able to... We're going to have a cap at 20 participants and, uh, we might actually hit that cap. <laughs> I, I didn't think I yeah. would say that, but yeah. Yeah, I could see that. The uh, They're also going to break the single debate with all candidates format, and they're going to kind of put different people on different nights, jumble up the crowd. It won't be um, like a kid's table debate like the mm -hmm. Republicans had last cycle where there's uh, people polling less than 8% or whatever. Yeah. Instead, they'll be a side ramp. That seems a little bit fair. I think, yeah, I'm not even sure what the point of a kids' table debate would be. I mean, that's necessarily going to diminish any of the candidates participating in that one. So, yeah, that seems a little bit fair. But then you say, you know, depending on the luck of the draw, uh, you never really get a debate or discussion, say, between Sanders and Biden or Harris and Warren or something like that. It It's interesting. It's a lot of people in this field. And I don't know. We're I think we've been feeling pretty confident up until, you know, for most of this year. And I'm not sure how justified that's always been. It's it's odd to me, too, because there are a lot of reasons to be confident. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of signs look fantastic, look amazing. Mm -hmm. But then just this looming cloud of this is exactly how we shoot ourselves in the foot every single goddamn time it is waiting to, to burst through. And maybe that's not fair. By every single goddamn time, I think like 
yeah. last cycle. Right. Um, although 2004 was pretty messy as well. There were a lot of candidates, no incumbent. Mm-hmm. And yeah, uh, at least a favorite that emerged relatively early on who completely crashed and burned. So yeah, yeah, I and you mean Wesley Clark? Yeah, Wesley Clark. That's because he was a favorite about. for a while. Well, yeah, it seemed like everyone kind of took a turn. I mean, I'm I'm mostly thinking of Dean. It felt like by the end of December that he was really going to do it, and then one loss in Iowa, and then it completely collapsed. Yeah, the dream is still alive. I know, I know. That was. That was my first real damn primary because, you know, I didn't really follow 2000 all that closely because in 2000, the Democratic primary was completely boring and the Republican primary was, uh, well, John McCain and Bush. So, yeah, totally, you know, very different dynamic. But, you know, 2004, there was a lot of excitement. You know, I first time I made donations to a presidential candidate, even though I was in college and probably shouldn't have been able to afford it. Uh, Were you on the school board at that time or did that come later? That was right at the time that I transitioned from being on the school board to being on the assembly. Okay. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, so that, you know, still remember that still haunts me, you know, cause God damn it. We were going to, we were going to take back the white house. We were going to go to, Wisconsin and South Carolina and, and <laughs> Colorado. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. God damn. What a bummer that was. Now we're reliving that. Yeah, that was but, the, the real early days of Daily Coast and whatnot. Yeah. I mean, that was where a lot of the structures that run, or at least, I wouldn't say run, but at least a lot of the channels for activism were really built that are still used today. I mean, cost is still around. They're still running straw polls and, you know, it's, they hold their conventions and the candidates try and get their influence. Yeah. Even the, uh, I, I guess the vestiges of that campaign are still around. His, his campaign manager that ran that whole deal for him, uh, was the one who got, got, uh, Doug Jones elected down in Alabama. Exactly. Yeah. 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 A lot of people cut their teeth on that. Um, and having that sort of campaign uh, really helps lay the groundwork. Like political parties have a have a bench, and we talk about that a lot. But I don't think it gets the proper explanation a lot. And just governing and campaigning is a skill like any other. When you practice it, you get better at it. Uh, <laughs> it's one of the reasons why I don't. And I wish JJ were here to tell me I'm wrong. But it's one of the reasons I don't support uh, term limits on politicians. Being a senator is a skill. I don't want mm -hmm. to get somebody who has no idea what they're doing every 12 years. Yeah, well, isn't that a big issue in California where they've got pretty draconian term limits? And so. Yeah, and they're... it leads to ridiculous shit like Jerry Brown hopping from governor to mayor of Oakland to right. uh, attorney general to governor and then back again and again and again. Yeah, they just they swap jobs around. Mayoral ships become more important. The the mayors of each city have a national So yeah, they have a real weird system for California. It mostly involves breaking up power centers. Yeah. The only yeah, the only comfortable sinecure, I guess, is if you can get one of the Senate seats and then you can hold on to it for thirty years. Yeah. Um 
until you yell at some kids. I, I was gonna, Jesus I was Christ. just going to say, if you wanted to, <laughs> if we wanted to talk about that, even though it wasn't on the topic list, uh, last night video of Diane Feinstein yelling at some kids. Yeah, oh, that about was about the Green New else. Deal. Uh, came on Twitter this morning. Turns out it was deceptively edited, uh, mm. and in fact, they had like a twenty-minute-long, wonderful discussion where she supported the ideas in the Green New Deal in general, mm-hmm. but wanted her specific legislation, which, by the way, the Green De- uh, New Deal at this point is not actually a concrete plan right now. It's more a, a statement of goals. Yeah. Uh, she wanted to support that. She gave offered one of the kids an internship. I think he accepted. And then they, they left together. It was actually a very charming interaction uh, between people and their government. And, and really, I, I thought, set a high note for Diane Feinstein, but apparently I'm just wrong. Well, you you got to see the two-minute video first and then set your opinion and never change it. So, yeah, we've got our own left-wing project Veritas now, so that's cool. Uh, I, <laughs> I don't want to stir the pot, but it, it was edited and released by uh, somebody from AOC's campaign wing. Yeah, the Sunshine uh, group, whatever they're called. So, is it, or Sunrise. Sunrise Movement, that's it. Yeah. yeah. So uh, that that is a thing. Not really sure what's going on there. Uh, they, they've defended that, saying they only trimmed it down because uh, Twitter has limits on video posts on the platform. Doesn't seem like a good reason to me, but what do I know? Yep. I will. I I think we'll go off the beaten path again. Talk about something that's not on the topic list, but we sure everything really really quickly. Uh, there's been a a lot going on up in Alaska. I don't know if you've been following along. Oh yeah. Will's yeah. been updating us from time to time, but I've been reading the Anchorage Daily News uh, every so often to keep an eye on it. And holy crap. Uh, they want to slash the state budget by like 30 or 40 percent or something like that. Um, University of Alaska system is going to lose almost half its money. Uh, things are being slashed uh, across this entire budget. A hatchet, not a scalpel. Other platitudes that will make you feel better. Yeah. Um, it, it's absolutely ridiculous, and there is some signs that the legislature uh, may not be going along with it. Uh, he also abolished Alaska's climate change just because they wouldn't approve a bridge in the car. Jeez. Oh, that's good. That's yeah. just what we need. Yeah, yeah. He's they, they really signed themselves up for a real winner with this one, you know, with this new governor. He's doing all this, by the way, to fulfill a campaign pledge to uh, return the permanent fund dividend to previous levels. Uh, right. In order to do that, he has to completely eviscerate state government. Because that's, I mean, yeah, the permanent fund was, uh, yeah, the permanent fund was, uh, I guess, uh, what's the term I'm looking for here? Skimmed to actually pay for state government because none of, nobody could agree to raise taxes. And the price of oil, which had been sustaining the state for the last 35 years, has uh, collapsed. And there's got to be some way to actually pay for government now. And that's pretty much... Either that or a tax is it, unless you want to have no government at all. Yeah, it wouldn't even matter if the price of oil went back up at this point. They've given out so many tax breaks to oil, uh, 
the oil companies to keep production up. And mm -hmm. the reason for that is the uh, pipeline has, for the last decade or so, been dangerously close to the minimum uh, amount of oil allowed for its operations without to shut down. There's less than that going through it. Yep. And uh, they just they need to keep the oil pumping. So these companies are paying basically some taxes on their Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, that's, you know, bad all around. Like you mentioned, at least there's a little bit of check and balance in that a uh, new uh, caucus has finally been formed. Majority caucus has been formed in the Alaska House, which uh, amazingly, it sounds like there's at least, it sounds like a half a dozen Republicans have actually joined this. It's like 19 Democrats or 17 Democrats, a couple independents, and then a half dozen Republicans. Which, yeah, that having grown up in Alaska, that is astonishing. I could not have imagined that the last time I had any kind of personal connection to Alaska politics. Haven't so, we had a, a bipartisan coalition in charge of the House for like a while? For the last two years, yes, but I, it I was to pretty. in like high school, we had that. No, no, no. Uh, the House was overwhelmingly Republican. They had like uh, a couple, like one token Democrat who caucused with them sometimes, and he was uh, from Northwest Alaska, rural. Uh, he was from and, like Nome or something. Yeah, that was Richard Foster. Yeah, interesting guy. Uh, one time I was hanging out in his office and he whipped out a Nazi flag. So, uh, okay then. yeah, I mean, not, not like that he was an enthusiast, but, uh, I think it was some kind of memorabilia from world war two, but <laughs> yeah, that was a holy shit moment. Uh, but yeah, so it was a bipartisan caucus nominally speaking, but it was basically, you know, Republicans with a couple of conservative Democrats along with them. Uh, but yeah, interesting guy, interesting guy, uh, you know, rest in peace. He was, he was quite a character. I've uh, actually got eight Republicans. Yeah. Eight Republicans. I mean, that, that's what I cannot believe because the last two years they've had a bipartisan caucus, which was mostly Democrats, a couple of independents and two or three very liberal or at least non-ideological Republicans who were part of it. But to get six, eight Republicans, you have to be digging into mainstream, normal Republicans that are on board with this. The, yeah, the last legislature, the 30th, uh, the majority coalition was 17 Democrats, three Republicans. And then this time around, it's now up to, uh, well, down to 15 Democrats. Update Republicans and say two independents. Yeah, so yeah, that I think some of that's got to be reaction to Dunleavy himself, and I think Will might have speculated along these lines, you know, on the page or at least in some of the comments that people are reacting in some horror to all the cuts that are being proposed here and what that implies for the state. So, uh, what was, and then I think you had the article that you posted from the Washington Post about, uh, you know, possibly being a Kansas style reckoning in Alaska. And that's, yeah. that, I think that's probably the best way to describe it. Really. It's been years and years of very conservative dominance and one-sided government where you had, I think there was a brief interregnum of about four years where you had a bipartisan coalition in the Senate because it was split 50, 50, 
uh, and then a de facto Democrat who was actually a Republican as governor for the last four years. But generally speaking, the government's been pretty Republican and pretty conservative. And all of the options for not governing hard right conservative have been exhaust. Well, all, all the options to do anything but govern hard right conservative have really been exhausted. And now they have to kind of take some stock of the future and realize that, you know, maybe there's going to have to be either a tax or at least think about that in the future, you know, or use the permanent fund the way it was intended and actually pay for government with it. We, uh, we talk about the, the tax issue a lot in relation to Washington because mm-hmm. uh, it's, it's right next door where we live down here. But uh, that, that same resistance to any sort of, of state income tax is present up there, although they couple it with a resistance to sales tax as well and property tax, although mm-hmm. local municipalities can put in their own sales tax and property tax. But it's just, it's not sustainable. It's, it's based on this resource extraction economy that is no longer, not even just bad, and I do believe that, but mm-hmm. no longer profitable, really. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the value of oil as a commodity has changed, and the way it's produced has changed. Uh, we're getting it from places where ordinarily we couldn't, where the technology couldn't get it out of the ground. So, South Dakota, or not South, North Dakota, I'm sorry, has uh, eclipsed Alaska in a in a big way in terms of production of oil, and yeah, the. They're going, you know, the oil producers are going to places where it's relatively easier to work and extract. And frankly, there's only so much in the ground on the North Slope anyway. So, yeah, they're kind of running out of options. And uh, at a time, there was a time when Alaska's leaders were pretty forward looking and they were planning for the day when this would come. And what they came up with was uh, having a sovereign wealth fund in place that could eventually pay for the needs of the state. And they've been resistant to ever kind of touch it because it's also been a very nice political payout to the citizens to give them, you know, put a couple thousand bucks in their pocket every year. And there are places where that can be done well. Uh, sure. Norway is a wonderful example of this. Uh, nationalized their their oil, plugged it into the sovereign wealth fund. It, it has done great great strides for that country in order mm-hmm. to to fund the backbone of the social service state that they have there. But they also couple that with, you know, your expected Scandinavian levels of taxation and social right. welfare, and uh, putting it in this libertarian context. Uh, ended up being raiding the piggy, piggy jar to put you know, dollars in people's pockets. Exactly. That's exactly it. Uh, it's a nice thing that will add to a you know conventional set of revenues, but you can't run a modern state on that alone. And I think that's what is either going to be learned or they're going to inflict a recession on themselves. It'll be, you know, like Brexit on a smaller scale. <laughs> uh, I, 
I guess we'll we'll turn to the local stuff here uh, and kind of start wrapping up. We have an update to a story that we covered oh, yes. last week, <laughs> posted just a few days ago. So oh. now now you guys can hear the follow up, and I'll I'll actually get this up tomorrow since I don't have to go to work. Yeah. Uh, we have breaking Tim Iman news. <laughs> you want to let us know what happened, Dan? Oh, it was all just a huge misunderstanding. He what he and just forgot to pay for it and he there was just a confusion with the clerk he would never have gone back to pay for other items if he had actually shoplifted a chair or so he wants us all to think so i guess that is where his responses come in and also possibly he's being politically persecuted by the attorney general of the state of washington so oh man that's just great. <laughs> yeah, and he uh, he made a big show about going back into the, uh, the office oh, right. depot or Best Buy or whatever and buying the chair and videotape the entire thing. It was a very weird exchange. Yep, yep. Wanted to make sure that you know I'm paying for it. I just forgot it was completely innocent. So, uh, what a guy. Yeah, he's going through bankruptcy right now. I imagine he'll be back as soon as he discharges his debts and gets other people to start giving him money. Yep. That's, what is it? Uh, hadn't been any gag orders on anything about that, right? And now I was thinking of Roger Stone with that. So he's still <laughs> he's still free to fundraise. Uh, Roger Stone has now had a complete and total gag order in place, by the way. We didn't cover that in the rundown. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> So it had previously been that Roger Stone was uh, banned from talking about the case around the courthouse. He, they, they were worried him holding press conferences uh, on the courthouse steps was prejudicing, prejudicing witnesses and lawyers, and I still mispronounce that word maybe a second time. Uh, then he went on Instagram and posted a scathing picture of the judge, including some like target Reticules right next to her head. Yeah, and she was having none of it. We forgot <laughs> to cover that in the Manafort stuff. Oh, yeah. Mm. As we uh, wrap Couldn't up, Couldn't happen to a nicer this, guy. Yeah. A, uh, as we wrap up, and we're going to talk about what we're following this week, I'm actually going to go first because you have a history of stealing my things, and this one <laughs> is a pet, pet cause of mine. Washington is doing something that is incredibly smart, or at least it looks set like it's going to do something that's incredibly smart. It's going to opt out of daylight savings time. Or oh. actually, it's going to put itself on permanent daylight savings time. Then. Strange. Uh, changing the clocks is dumb. We are not an uh, agrarian society at this point. We don't you know, revolve around harvesting time. It, it causes massive amounts of confusion and lost productivity. As much as I like getting an extra hour of sleep, I don't like losing an extra hour of sleep another day. It's stupid. There are states that do this wonderfully, and I don't just mean states in the U.S. I mean states as in countries, although there are states in the U.S. Mm -hmm. who do this wonderfully, too. Arizona does not right. do daylight savings time. Yeah. They, they permanently opt into it. Uh, Washington has two bills in the legislature uh, that would pull Washington out of this horrible clock regime that makes no sense because it's it's not 1690 anymore. <laughs> uh, 
both of them have uh, have gone out of committee. The only major uh, major hiccup on them or difference between them, excuse me, is one would require a ballot vote, the other one wouldn't. Uh, both of them would also stay their effect until Congress changes some laws, which I don't actually know anything about. Uh, I don't think Congress is the type of body that's allowed to dictate to states how they keep time. That seems to me like... Uh, Not generally, yeah. Yeah, that, that seems to me to be a state issue. <laughs> so yeah. I wouldn't... Uh, it, and it gets even more complicated than that, and people are not weirded out by it. Uh, in Arizona, which does not follow daylight savings time, the Navajo Nation is on a separate time zone, uh, and it, it's not a whole hour offset. It's like a 15-minute offset or a 30-minute offset. And so... One side of that has daylight savings time flipping back and forth. The other time doesn't. Part of it has a weird 15-minute time zone or something or a 45-minute time zone. And nobody freaks out. This is surprisingly way simpler than making everybody change their clocks twice a year. Good mm. on you, Washington. More states should do I will. I'll get off my soapbox. Shit, I, I like having it brighter at night, but... <laughs> That's why they go to permanent daylight enemy. savings yeah, time. Yeah. <laughs> Just make okay. it permanently bright. Or actually, it's the other way around. Mm -hmm. and well, then go permanently off daylight savings time. Yeah, yeah. yeah. All right. All right. Fair enough. That should be better. All right. I, I'm willing to try it out. <laughs> All right. So what am I following this week? Okay. So I'm not following it yet because I was kind of annoyed that I didn't get it included in the uh, day one package that I bought. But Civilization VI has got a new expansion out, and it's kind of the largest expansion that the game series has ever done. And it's one of the most complex and also one of the most timely. Uh, in the uh, new package that's uh, come out with the game called uh, Gathering Storm, I want to say, it's the main focus is climate change, which is a really cool feature, which Civ has flirted with in the past, but they haven't done it as comprehensively as what they're going to be doing now, uh, where there's actually, you know, the amount of change is based on, of course, human activity and uh, the amount, the type of human activity and the carbon that gets put into the atmosphere. And I am really excited to try this out. However, like I said, the package that I bought when the game first came out in 2016 only included the first set of DLC. So I'm waiting for a sale and I'm very annoyed, but, but this looks awesome and I can't wait to try it out when I get the chance. Have you uh, seen the early reports about Google's uh, game streaming service? No, I have not. What's, what's going on with that? So it's looking like they're going to launch a subscription gaming service uh, where you just need a thin client. You just need any computer. It doesn't matter if you have a graphics card. You huh. have to do it on console, too. Uh, and they, they run games on their powerful server, and they stream the video to you, kind of what uh, I think it was Gamefly or something tried to do a while ago, but they didn't have anywhere near the network infrastructure that Google has. Uh, so the latency is, is ridiculous. They teamed up with Ubisoft, to do this for the new Assassin's Creed game, it's winter. That's kind of a, a limited trial run. They let you sign up for the beta and for two weeks to play the new Assassin's Creed for the streaming thing. And uh, it looks like at the game development conference that's coming up, they're going to launch the service. So you may be able to just, you know, pay Google nine ninety nine a month to play shit. Huh. 
That might be something. Neat. I've, uh, this is probably super millennial, and I really pride myself on not being a millennial. But uh, I, I love the, the uh, subscription shit. I pay them nine ninety nine a month for uh, Play Music, do all my music crap, and it comes with free premium YouTube, which has just ridiculous amounts of features that I can't so I can say no. But, um, Interesting. Yeah, so I, I'm kind of excited about that. Uh, it would invalidate my 3,000 game collection on Steam, but, you know. <laughs> oh, well. All right. Have a good week, man. Yeah, you too, Brock. Bye. All right, bye.